that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. This is Canon Andrew Brazier. And this is Venerable Isaac Rayford. Good to be back. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing good. We are uh, beginning Synod in a day or two. So uh, Excellent. that's yeah. always a fun time of year. I imagine that's a busy time for you, especially. Yeah, we're, we, this is our second year doing it digitally. And I, I, I yeah. was drafted into the uh, planning committee for the digital end of things. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about it, but I can, I can follow orders. That's, that's one thing I'm good at. So <laughs> well, I don't know whether to congratulate you or to give you my condolences. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's too good. Well, so good to, uh, to be back. And uh, we're beginning a new chapter, chapter five of uh, Dr. Toons knowing God through the liturgy. Uh, so chapter five is going to be, uh, you know, just a very, you know, light read, just baptism and confirmation. <laughs> right. Light stuff. Nothing deep there at all. Nothing deep at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go through this, obviously, uh, take your time a little bit. It's broken up if you're reading along with us. If not, then I'll just let you know. There's an introductory uh, section here that goes over both baptism and confirmation. And then we also have uh, broken up a section on baptism and a section on confirmation. So today, we'll just get started and do the introduction, see how far we get, see if we can actually make it through baptism or not. So without further ado, what I'll do, uh, Isaac, is I'll, I'll start off with the first paragraph and we just kind of alternate back and forth. Sounds great. All right. Knowing God as his adopted child begins for the Christian at holy baptism. In the case of adults, there have been a preliminary and preparatory knowing as they are drawn to Christ in what many may call an initial conversion, and as they begin to prepare for full incorporation into Christ, crucified and risen, and membership of his body, the church. In the third and fourth centuries, adults went through a long period of preparation in the catechetical schools before the final preparation in Lent, leading to baptism on Easter Eve. In modern times, we've made the preparation less exacting, but there are moves afoot to recover a longer and deeper preparation for entry into the full fellowship of the church. This preparation is so necessary today, for the tentacles of secularist culture have entered our minds and hearts and corrupted them so deeply that we need a new view of the world and of God in order to develop Christian thinking, feeling, and acting. One problem is, do we have the clergy and lay leadership to do this teaching? And so I like how Dr. Toon, you know, really gets into an area that we've seen blossom a little bit since his writing, uh, but it's still very much, I think, in its infancy in terms of us finding a, a true return to, uh, you know, the catechesis, uh, catechetical schools. And as he leaves us hanging on this first paragraph of asking, do we have the clergy and lay leadership who can do this teaching in the first place? I was thinking the exact same thing, um, kind of on two fronts within our own context nowadays. Uh, one, there, there, it seems that kind of on a diocese by diocese basis, there is, um, there are more trained, commissioned, et cetera, catechists, um, which is good. You know, we, I, I know of one young man who, uh, when he was in the Houston area, um, was kind of the, the catechist for his diocese there, and um, so much of their evangelism was based on, you know, setting this guy out to uh, to handle the seekers, and just you know, he was kind of kind of a rock star, um, according to his rector. Uh, he disagrees, <laughs> but uh, but his rector his rector really considered him a rock star. So um, good to kind of pick his brain from time to time. And, and the other thing is, um, there is a renewal in catechesis in general. Mm-hmm. It seems in um, 
at least in North American kind of traditional Protestantism, uh, and, and, you know, within our own context, again, we have that, that ACNA catechism, that to be a Christian, mm-hmm. which is really designed for the unchurched. Yes. It's designed to kind of recover that old school adult catechesis. And I think that's a good thing. Yes, I do too. And I just picked up my copy of it. And I have to say that one of the things that I appreciate about the, uh, the ACNA to be a Christian catechism is the depth of it uh, does a great job of having resources in the back, uh, such as having the citations of scripture in terms of where are these uh, answers coming from. Uh, they do a good job of having citations with the question and answer format, not to mention even having a, a right at the back of the uh, catechism in which you can actually have the, the catechumens uh, preps and uh, really given uh, an explanation of, you know, what you're doing by enrolling in uh, the catechumen. Um, and so I think that this is something that we really need to anchor in on. We really need to, to encourage uh, within our own parishes and with anyone else that we know in other parishes, because it's a, such a great resource to, to really, you know, prompt someone to dig into scripture, since there's so many scriptural references within uh, this new catechism. Yeah, and, and I think it would not be atypical if needed to that, that you know, it, it was said that in back, back in the day, you know, uh, third and fourth centuries, that adult catechesis could take two or three years. And I could see that happening with, with it to be a Christian if necessary. Absolutely. We actually did that uh, during Lent. We started it off a little bit uh, early in pre-Lent because I knew it's a beast. Uh, I just set it down, but there's several hundred questions on this new catechism and 368 to be exact yeah so you can almost do one a day that may be yeah a new way of, of doing it i'm gonna have to send that out to the parish but we did that we were able to finish it up before easter we felt a little bit rushed doing it like that but still a, a good exercise that i really encourage everyone even if you've been a lifelong christian there's so much lack of knowledge in terms of just scriptural knowledge, much less what it is that we believe. And this is a great resource to really dig in and dig in deep. Not to mention, I personally, I love the the classic catechism that is yeah. uh, made there for raising up the children in the church so they know the basics of the faith so they can be confirmed at an early age. And as a matter of fact, last night I started something new. I've been going through that classic catechism with my kids before. Uh, sometimes it's at the end of the day when they're ready to uh, to get the sack. But I decided, you know what? Let's do this over dinner while they're eating their dinner instead of me yelling at them, eat your dinner. <laughs> I told them, like, <laughs> just eat your dinner. Listen, I'm going to go through this and ask me a question when you have one. It, it worked pretty good for the first first round. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. I, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of thinking through the best way to uh, to start that with mine. Um, and my eldest is six and. Yes. While we have been doing some catechesis, it hasn't been as as um, uh, intentional and systematic as I'd like at this point. So that's, yeah, I might have to try that. Absolutely. All right, well, I'm going to pick up the next paragraph here. Speaking of the little ones, next paragraph. With infants, there is no obvious preliminary knowing of God. And thus their knowing of God, or more strictly, God's gracious knowing them as his adopted children, begins at baptism and comes to fruition with confirmation. At least this is how it ought to be. But in this instance, God's grace coming to fruition in their lives is in part dependent upon faithful nurturing and teaching of the baptized by parents and godparents, sponsors. Therefore, the actual coming to know God in a personal way seems to occur more readily and easily when the baptized infant is surrounded by faithful prayer, godly example, and sound teaching. Yeah, and that, that's, that, that, is, the, uh, that is the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's the best way to do this? How do we as parents and godparents fulfill it? Not always the easiest thing to answer, I think, um, mm-hmm. but, but I, I have seen it even without um, parents and godparents being as intentional as we'd like. I've seen it work out really well anyway. Yeah. Um, 
and, and oftentimes that seems to be just by parents living as Christians, you know, caring about, you know, making sure you're reading the Bible to your kids and whatnot, um, taking them to church every week, mm-hmm. you know, Sunday school, that sort of thing. Um, so it, I, I, we, I might be overthinking it <laughs> a little bit. No, no, I think you're, you're spot on there. And it's really the buck stops with us as the, as the parents, you know, or if anyone's listening and you're not the parent, but you're the guardian, you're the grandparent, and you're, you're the one who, who's raising uh, the children uh, in your life, or you're not raising them, but you have parents who are raising your grandchildren, you know, or you don't have children yet, but you've got young cousins, you know, and you're their godparents. Even if you're not officially their godparents, you have influence over these little ones and how they're raised in the church. And it very much starts with us on examining ourselves, making sure that we're living a Christian life, that we're engaged in prayer, that we're reading the scriptures, because the little ones, they notice, they notice everything, <laughs> especially when you're the parent, you yeah. live with them 24 um, seven. And it's good and bad because they're going to notice uh, the faults that you have, but they're also going to notice what you take seriously if you truly take seriously the faith that you profess that's it's going to rub off to a certain extent uh what i find a little bit humorous and, and quite convicting is uh if i'm you know telling the children good night and i'm like oh it's really late you know we, we got in too late tonight we were doing something else you know, let's just do a quick prayer and uh my littlest one beckett will say you didn't tell me a god story of course that gets me every time like all right yeah (laughs) yeah, all right i'm gonna tell you a story from scripture so (laughs) i'm not gonna walk out you've got me uh i I shouldn't ever you know cut this uh, short you know we're doing our prayers but always traditionally tell them like all right let's talk about an aspect of what christ did his ministry uh to try to hopefully plant those seeds and if i try to short them they always call me out on it as they should um, yeah. that's a good thing to develop but of course that didn't happen at first at first it was you know why are we you know having to sit down and then you kind of realize as a parent with the young ones you can't get them to sit down precisely quietly they're kind of up and walking around and you're talking to them or you're praying and kind of praying over them but they're listening they are listening even though you think that none of this is getting through to them so yeah, mine, mine do mine do that same thing. They they keep me honest in that regards. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like you know, last night um, I was going to abbreviate the prayers, and my 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 daughter would not let me do that, <laughs> which, is, which is good good for her. That's great. That's fantastic. We'll continue and, on. But one other, thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. One one other thing, um, you know, as much as you know, we we do have a duty as parents, godparents. And, and the pastors, and we, and we need to take that very seriously. And at the same time, we need to remember to trust the Lord, um, yes. you know, because he's the one that brings them in. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can, we, we, we do our duty, but it's, but it's his, it's his grace. It's his wooing. Very much, very much so. And it kind of goes back to a prayer that I commonly have at night of praying over the children and praying for the spirit to, um, to, to come alive within them because the, um, uh, the wonders of our faith is we know by virtue of our baptism, we're getting ready to talk about baptism of, of the gift of the Holy Spirit and um, them being baptized um, as, as infants, having that, that faith and that hope that the Lord is already present and praying that as the Spirit grows within them, that they, they nurture the Spirit, they listen to the Spirit, and they follow uh, the Spirit within them. We'll continue on here in this last chapter to the introduction. Originally, what we call baptism and confirmation belonged together and were one, occurring in the one service and usually at Easter Eve in the early centuries of the church. However, from the 5th century onwards, and with the great increase in the number of people professing Christianity, many more babies than adults were brought for baptism. And so the separation of confirmation, really the last part of the rite of baptism, from baptism, developed in the West. But not in the East, where the priest administered chrism, anointing with oil, as part of baptism of infants. Thus, in the West, from the Middle Ages to the modern day, the precise relation of baptism and confirmation has sometimes not been as clearly stated as it could have been. And this is reflecting the question whether or not baptized children ought to be brought to or encouraged to receive Holy Communion before their confirmation. And in fact, whether confirmation is truly necessary. So we have in just these three sentences here, the short paragraph, a lot of information, which is extremely relevant for what we see today, because I can only imagine 
that in many uh, of those who are listening, uh, regardless if you're, if you're Anglican, Lutheran, you know, um, or some other liturgical uh, church practice, you see a variety of practice now in the West in terms of uh, is confirmation uh, enforced? Uh, is it something that's normative uh, for uh, children? I would, I would hope so. Uh, in addition to the, the question of uh, paleo communion, of whether or not you're communing uh, children prior to their, their confirmation. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of controversy on that. Um, you know, I, I, as a parent, you know, my, my, my daughters will most likely be refraining from communion until, until they're confirmed, but you know, I'm hoping part of what that means is an earlier confirmation, earlier uh, when, when they're ready for it. Yeah, um, yeah. They, you know, which which and part of that comes back again. Am I doing my duty as as their dad, um, as their priest, as their pastor as well? Yeah. In, in in making sure these kids, you know, my daughters are 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 properly trained um, so that they can do that early. Um, you know, and I've seen I've seen extremes on this. You know, on the one extreme. I, I've seen a couple times some kids get confirmed much earlier than they should have, um, largely because they were coming from a tradition that practiced a separate first communion rite, um, and you know it was expected that by the age of six or seven they were communing, and yep. so they ended up getting kind of pushed through confirmation when they weren't quite quite ready. I've seen that happen mm -hmm. before. Yeah, uh, but I've also seen. Um, you know, kind of delaying communion well into the teenage years, which, which I think is just, that, that just doesn't make a lot of sense either. No, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd situation, mm -hmm. um, you know, and a lot of it does come from, like you said, we in the West right now are a bit confused mm -hmm. as to that relationship between baptism, confirmation and communion and, you know, some of this, you know, he, he, he kind of alluded to this when he talked about the priest chrismating the children in baptism. And part of this was in the West, we wanted to retain confirmation as um, having connection to the bishop. So baptism gets delegated to the priests, um, but not confirmation. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the East, they delegated both baptism and chrismation to the priest so, so that they didn't separate the, initi the initi initiation rites. Whereas for us, we wanted not to separate um, laying on of hands from the bishop. Yes. And from my understanding in, in the East, I've visited many Eastern uh, churches before Eastern Orthodox. Um, I can't confess, I don't believe I've attended an Eastern Orthodox baptism, but I knew that they go ahead and they confer the anointing of what we would call uh, confirmation tied with the sacrament of baptism. They never separated like Dr. Tune mentions. And also, right. I think, I haven't studied their liturgy, but I think it's also different. Uh, of course, with Reformation, we reformed uh, confirmation to also make it a, a statement of claiming our baptismal promises, claiming our faith uh, that our godparents and our parents made uh, on behalf of us in baptism. And I don't think there's that aspect, I could be wrong, when it comes to Eastern uh, baptism and confirmation. I think it's more of a, you baptize, you do the actual anointing with all oil and laying on of hands. Um, and then you have your godparents uh, there who are also professing the faith over you. I could be wrong on that, but I don't know if you know anything more about the um, Eastern practice. Yeah, I, I, I don't. To my knowledge, they do not have that um, confirming of the faith, you know, which is why they don't really use that term. They use yes. chrismation rather than confirmation because that's what's going mm -hmm. on. I mean, they are anointing, um, you know, and the other thing that happens in the among the churches of the Reformation anyway, including ours, mm -hmm. is that the oil becomes a lot less important. Yeah. And the importance is really the laying on of hands following the pattern we see in the book of Acts with the apostles following up some of the other other folks um, um my my the address of it's kind of kind of escaping me acts eight maybe but um so there's there there are different emphases as well mm -hmm. um but and, and i think what ends up happening is no matter what there is a con, a bit of a confusion as to how we're going to handle this mm -hmm. um you know and, and a lot of that comes from 
um, as he said, that, that there were a lot more children being raised in the faith than converts, mm-hmm. you know, as kind of Christendom becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're still, we're, we're kind of, it seems to me that we're in a bit of a transition with that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, because there are so many people that are unchurched, mm-hmm. um, we, we can see more, you know, a, a lot more adult converts than we used to. Yeah. Although in, in my particular parish, what we see more is folks that are de-churched coming mm-hmm. back rather than Same the here. people that are unchurched coming for the first time. So a lot of times these folks have, you know, been baptized either as a child or, you know, as, as, a, as a teenager or something like that, um, you know, and they're kind of returning to the faith. So mm-hmm. we're still not seeing a lot of adult baptisms here. Uh, but but I, I do think, you know, there is some changing that's happening in, in, in the West on that. Yeah, and we're, we're seeing the same thing in terms of like de-church. So you and I are both in, in the South, although sometimes Texas doesn't like to be considered the South or the West, it's Texas. I'll look at that. But, uh, <laughs> when it comes to tea, we are firmly the South. Sweet tea is the only tea. So I think that's the, that's the criteria I use. There we go. I like that. <laughs> but, uh, but we see the same demographic there of a lot of, of de-church. So they, they've been to church. They were raised in the church. They left it at some point. And so what we're kind of seeing is I think we're, we're transitioning general, general, generationally. There we go. To seeing where we'll start seeing more adult baptisms, you know, again, as we're kind of undoing the Christian fabric of our uh, particular culture and society here in the States. But for right now, at least here in the South, what I'm seeing is we're having to catechize those who have already been baptized. They aren't from a, a liturgical tradition that have been confirmed and we have that laying on of hands, that, that confirmation will certainly come into place. But uh, really, we find people who haven't baptized in the name of the Triune God. They're coming into the Anglican Church, and uh, many of them have also been confirmed. But what we're doing is having them at our parish go through the catechesis process to really learn what is the scriptures? What is it that we believe? Because sadly, either they've forgotten or they've never really been truly catechized in the first place. So it's something that I think that all of us, and it's a duty that both clergy and laity have of making sure that those who are in our charge and our care are catechized and learn the faith. Um, so I really encourage everyone to, to crack open those books and, um, and start, you know, catechizing um, and start a catechism class because you can be a, a catechist. Uh, it's, a, it's a lay office. It's one that uh, on the ACNA to be a, a Christian, they lay out within the right um, the fact that there can be a catechist who doesn't have to be ordained, but who's responsible in teaching um, the catechism. Uh, it also makes me think back to the 1604 uh, canons of the Church of England. And there's two things that, that come to my mind. One of them was that it was required of the, uh, the vicar or the rector of the parish uh, every Sunday evening, as I recall, to uh, do the catechism with the children of the parish. Because, of course, at that point, um, most of the adults were, were raised in the church. You know, they baptized and confirmed already, but the children had not been confirmed. So you had this duty of teaching on Sunday evenings. And the other thing is when confirmation, uh, the frequency of it by canon was supposed to be at least once every three years, the bishop should make it around to your parish to confirm uh, those who have been baptized. And you see this ideal that was definitely not met for my limited reading of the, the history. You very much had bishops who didn't show up once in like five years, which is crazy, but, uh, but they didn't. And so when they did, they would just have a long line of people who, who needed to be confirmed. And this was actually something that the reformers was trying to, trying to correct. And uh, it's not what Cramner wanted because uh, notoriously, during the, the Middle Ages uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, the bishops hardly ever visited. I mean, for years and years and years. And when they would, there would just be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of people lined up to be confirmed. And it would just be the bishop just laying on hands and just quickly doing it and not actually testing to see if, if they knew the faith. And that's why Luther and, and, uh, and Cramner and others, you know, really stressed knowing the Lord's Prayer, knowing uh, the creed, excuse me, know, knowing the Apostles' uh, Creed, and, uh, and also knowing uh, the commandments in order to show that you know the bare bones of what our faith is. Yeah, and it's, 
that that infrequency of, of of confirmation is probably what led to the stereotype of um, much older confirmations than would be ideal. Yeah, and and so yeah. And, you know, and then that leads to a stereotype where you think of confirmation almost as a graduation from learning about the faith, <laughs> yeah. which is terrible. But, you know, I mean, that's that is an old an old stereotype as well. It is. Um, yeah. No good. No good. Yeah. Oh, the, only, yeah it, the only thing that I'll add on, on that is, is the other thing that we see is uh, in the book of common prayer. You see uh, in the 28th, the, the rubric is still there. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't carried over to the 2019, but it says that. In terms of fencing the table, that all those uh, who are confirmed or are ready and uh, desirous of, of being uh, confirmed uh, can commune at, at the Lord's uh, table. And so that's something that I think really shows the, the spirit of what the, the Anglican Reformation was trying to get at. Of you should be confirmed before you commune. But if you're ready, desirous, you, you know the elements of our faith, and it's just the bishop hasn't made it around yet you're not going to be denied uh, receiving the Lord's Supper. Yeah, and that's, that's, and that's really good. And that, that gives a good amount of pastoral leeway to the mm -hmm. rectors as well, uh, which, which I think is a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Or right, I'll pick up the beginning of the baptism section itself. Okay. Baptism. There is a provision for both the baptism of adults and infants in the BCP 1928 and BCP 1962, the rite of holy baptism has five parts to it. One, the preparation, which, which represents what is survived from the ancient catechetical ceremonies of the early church. Two, the promises of the candidates or their sponsors slash godparents taking on the duties of the covenant of grace. Three, the blessing of the water in the font. Four, the act of baptism. And five, the final thanksgiving. Um, yeah, when he talks about the provision for both baptism of adults and infants, um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head with the 1962, um, that's the Canadian um, last edition of the classical text in, in Canada. But in the 28, they did something a little bit different from what the 1662 has it. The 1662 actually has separate baptismal rites for infants and adults. And if memory serves, the, the right for adults was a later addition to the prayer book, um, you know, because in its original context, just everybody was baptized as a child, but it was kind of the, the beginning of the colonial period when, um, you know, Christians were going out, you know, with, with the colonies and encountering uh, the Native Americans or, or, or Africans um, you know, you, you did begin to see a lot more adult converts among, among the natives. And so, um, that's, if I remember right, that's where the, the, the separate right of baptism for those of riper years, I, I think what the 1662 calls it came into play, but in the 1928, it's just a single right that has a different option for adults versus children. Yes, it's really interesting, and like you said, that, that American context made it more normative. Uh, once again, we're seeing adult uh, conversions and therefore having to go through the process of having a particular right for those circumstances. And um, the 2019 uh, prayer book, what they've done is they've made uh, one right for, for baptism, but they have within the actual right uh, delineation for uh, adults uh, and older children is the way it listed, and then infants and, and younger children. So, uh, still keeping that that separation because obviously we're we're in a context that we're we're going to continue to have more adult uh, conversions um, for people who are not raised in the church in our context. I'll pick up a yeah, and, and I have a, kind mm -hmm. of a question a question yeah. for you know just kind of for you um, you know rector director kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, if you have. Uh, children that, you know, maybe they're, you know, first, second, third grade who had not been baptized, but they are able to make those answers for themselves. Do you use that more adult right for them? You know, that's a great question. I haven't experienced that yet. Hopefully we'll experience that uh, very soon. But, uh, you know, that's something I have to think about before 
you'd hold me to it a hundred percent, but if they could, could answer <laughs> for themselves, I, I would want to encourage them to do so, you know, obviously have their parents standing up there with them, you know, um, and, and assisting them and helping them. But uh, I have to think about that a little bit further. Uh, what about yourself? What do you think? Um, I tend to lean towards if they can answer for themselves, I want them to answer for themselves. Yeah. I have seen it done. Um, basically if they're, you know, single digit <laughs> age, mm-hmm. you know, under, under what, what Baptists would call the age of reason kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, which I'm not sure that's really a thing, but Same. you know, some folks, some folks disagree with me. Uh, but yeah, I've seen it done where, yeah, if they're under, under the, the supposed age of region reason, they still have the, the parents and the sponsors answer for them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I lean towards, um, yeah, if, if, if they can answer for themselves, I have them answer for themselves. In, yeah. in my own baptizing, you know, I've done a couple of adults and I've done infants. I haven't done any older children yet, although I yeah. have a couple that are in the queue right now. We're just kind of waiting for, uh, for everybody involved to be willing to risk pandemic issues at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exciting. That, that's, that's great. And, uh, you know, I think that we have a possibility in our parish of, of seeing that before too long. Uh, but you've given me something to, to contemplate and think. But, yeah, I default more towards, you know, when, when a child can answer for him or herself uh, to let them do so. I think we don't give enough credit uh, for children. Uh, we came out of, you know, I think the past 20 years or longer than that now, you know, the term helicopter parent kind of popped up. And when you really speak with a child, of course, they may not get the intricacies of, of theological concepts front out loud. And the Lord beckons the children to come to him and tells us, you know, tells the adults that we should should love him and follow him and follow God um, uh, like little children. And if we're supposed to have a childlike faith, then uh, I think that we should give deference to and those, those children who are older than, you know, just mere babes, but are uh, not quite, you know, teenagers yet to be able to speak for themselves. So we'll go ahead and continue on with the next paragraph. In the first part, consisting of an exhortation, prayers and reading of the gospel, the truth that it is God who calls and brings people into covenant with him and thus into his kingdom and his church is most clearly acknowledged. In fact, this understanding is summarized in the prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, heavenly father, we give thee humble thanks that thou hast vouchsafed to call us to the knowledge of thy grace and faith in thee. Increase this knowledge and confirm this faith in us evermore. Give thy Holy Spirit to this child, etc. It's a great, you know, way to really get into baptism, to, to show that it's not a work of ourself, that it's a calling that God has brought us to. Yeah, and in the in the context, that's the prayer that follows um, the, the the reading of the gospel, the beginning of the 1928, and I assume the 1962 rite um, that you know follows after uh, the priest addressing the people saying, okay, being persuaded of the goodwill of our heavenly father toward this person or this child, etc., And then, then that's the prayer that follows that, uh, really setting the context for baptism. Um, you know, th- there is this expectation within the prayer books, baptismal rite, that the Holy Spirit is given in baptism. You know, there is not mm-hmm. a separate Holy Spirit baptism um, you know, contra some, some of the charismatic circles, mm-hmm. um, not, not as we understand it anyway, you know, confirmation is not the baptism, of the Holy spirit confirmation is the strengthening of those gifts that you received at your baptism. Absolutely. I think that's important. All right. Well, let me, let me grab the, grab the next one here. Yeah. Next page. getting my text to there we go Sorry. switching pages is always fun in, uh, in digital <laughs> copies it is pay no attention to the man behind the curtain um, <laughs> the promises made by the one to be baptized or the sponsors of the infant may be described as the response to the grace of god offered to mankind in jesus christ they can only promise because god has come to them called them and promised them the riches of his grace It is of note that they say, I will by God's help, and that human promises are immediately followed by four supplications, which, in addressing the God of all mercy for help, give expression to the mystical, spiritual, and moral meaning of baptism. Take, for example, the first supplication is, O merciful God, grant that like as Christ 
died and rose again, so this child or this thy servant may die to sin and rise to newness of life. Yeah, that's that's bringing that very Augustinian and, and um, yeah. you know, one might say reformed with an with a small r um, context to it. Um, you know, as, as much as baptismal vows are made, we recognize that, you know, God's help is needed to keep them. Um, I'm reminded in the in the office of instruction when after reciting the Ten Commandments, and um, you know the the minister saying something to the effect of you know are are you uh, are you persuaded that you are that it's your duty to do this? And the person says yes. He says okay, you can't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know that, that's that's one of the the paradoxes of of the Christian faith is that we are we do have a responsibility to uphold our, our, our baptismal vows, to walk in Christian obedience, while at the same time realizing that we just can't do it perfectly. We have to have God's grace and God's help. And, and he gives it to us. I mean, the fact that we, that we can do anything is his grace in that. Absolutely. And, uh, and like you said, you know, having that reminder of you can't do this, I think it's powerful and it's really showing the need for grace. And then all of this is grace. What you're receiving, what you're being brought into, into the church, the new life that you're being given is just a pure gift from God. And we make this vow and commitment to the Lord, but it's very much reminded to us that you're not able to keep this. And it's certainly not apart from the grace of God living within you. Uh, you cannot live uh, the new life. Uh, so it, it cures, of, of, cures us of any uh, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagian thought that we may have entering into uh, the service. We'll continue on. The blessing of the font is an ancient practice since prayers for the sanctification of the water formed a part of the baptismal liturgy from earliest times. The physical water does not change its chemical composition through prayer, but it is consecrated or set aside to be the outward and visible expression of an inward and spiritual cleansing. In fact, it is related its spiritual function to the water and blood which flowed from our Lord's pierced side, from John 19, verse 34. Once again, therefore, we see that the initiative is with God. Human beings are the recipients, not the initiators of grace. All that they have is from God and by God in grace. So I promise I didn't read ahead. <laughs> Basically, what I was talking about a moment ago of really hitting that, that grace aspect. But I like how Dr. Toon weaves in from the catechism, from the classic catechism that's in the prayer book, that this is the outward and visible expression. This water is. It's been blessed, sanctified, consecrated to holy use of what is inwardly, spiritually actually happening, a cleansing of ourselves. And there's liturgically, um, again, at least in the way it is in the 1928, um, uh, there's a very sacramental, like an intentional parallel with with um, the Sursum Corda, and you know, right. and, and kind of Holy Communion, the, the 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 rhythms of the Holy Communion. Once we get into the the actual consecration there. Um, you know, so after you have those, those four prayers after the vows, you know, we do have, we have a Sursum Corda, the Lord mm -hmm. be with you with thy spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord, let's give thanks unto the Lord our God that it is meet and right so to do. It is very meet, right, in our bounded duty that we should give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, Everlasting God. And then it goes into the, the blessing mm -hmm. of the font. Um, yeah, and that, and that. I, th I think there's something very, very cool and very intentional about that, remi mm -hmm. reminding us of of how much it is based on God's promises. Um, I don't remember who said it, but I I've heard it often talked about. You know, the sacraments being this very visible expression of the gospel. You know, it's the gospel yes. that we can touch mm -hmm. and taste and feel um, that we can splash ourselves with in yeah. respect to the sanctified water, that sort of thing. It really is. And and that's one of those areas where, you know, having that beautiful uh, flood prayer from Luther really, you know, pours it on in, in terms of, of what is happening. Sadly, the, the 1928 omits that prayer, but uh, it's a prayer that was in the 1662 right. and was thankfully restored in the 2019. I think for the first time in the American context, I think we've been deprived of the flood prayer um, since the American prayer book was first adopted. Am I wrong on that or? Um, no, I believe, I believe you're right. I, I remember that being one of the, um, the, the key things that was pointed out in the, in the 1928 baptism, I'm sorry, in the 
in the 2019 baptism when um, they were doing some of those breakout sessions at at assembly they, in 2019. Yeah. yeah. Um, that yeah that they point that yeah that was that was something that was particularly emphasized was the return of the flood prayer and it is a beautiful prayer. It is. It is. Yeah, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. Otherwise, I'd read it for y'all. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> there we go. Well, I'll continue on. The formula of baptism is taken from Matthew 28, 19, and is a fully Trinitarian formula. To pronounce the threefold name of the one God over a person is to state and confess that he or she belongs to God and is his forever. The name of God here stands for God himself, and thus we hallow the name of God. In other words, God is admitting this person into full membership and relationship of his covenant of grace. To sign him or her with the sign of the cross makes clear that the covenant of grace is in, by, and through Christ crucified. And thus, those who are in Christ are to take up their cross and follow him and continue in his name the war against the world, the flesh, and the devil until he comes again in power and glory. And again, tune is tune is basically just kind of walking through explaining the uh, the baptismal liturgy here. Yes. Um, yeah, that trinitarian formula is is incredibly important. Um, we would generally consider it not a valid baptism if it's not trinitarian. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that means in some kind of non denominational circles where things are just done not not that they they are done heretically, just a little sloppy. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, not having formal liturgy, sometimes it's just done a bit sloppy. Um, we end up having to do some conditional baptism, you know, <laughs> because, because we're, you know, need, need to make sure, um, you know, and on the other hand, you do have a few groups that are intentionally mm -hmm. not Trinitarian, um, you know, the oneness Pentecostals, for example, yep. or, um, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, their concept of the Trinity is, is, is not in line with with orthodox christianity and so yeah those, those would be yeah completely in, invalid baptisms in those cases um and and some some of the um some of the confusion is because in the book of acts they don't mm -hmm. have the trinitarian formula but um the the general way that's explained is that um the book of acts is using being baptized in the name of jesus as shorthand for Christian baptism versus John's baptism. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that, that argument um, is very much uh, evidenced by the fact that when you read the context of Acts and you see that you come in, in these scenarios where people have not been baptized before, they're baptized and they receive the Spirit, you have the instance in which uh, they ask, you know, have you, have you heard about the baptism? Have you heard about the Holy Ghost? And, and there's the response of like, I didn't even know there was a Holy Ghost that received uh, baptism, received laying on of hands, the Spirit is received. So like you said, it's shorthand since Luke is writing uh, to an audience where clearly it's, it's seen that he's presuming, you've read by first edition, right, of, of you know, the Gospel of Luke. So you understand there's a, a baptism of John versus the, the baptism uh, that Christ has now given us. And you get to the Acts of the Apostles and you see that baptism uh, in, in the name of the Holy Trinity is, is self-evident or is presumed that you understand what he's talking about. Of course, with Matthew clearly spelling it out, the Great Commission of baptizing in the name of the Holy Trinity. So it's clear that this is the reference that Luke is making, that it's not simply, are you baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. Therefore, you're, you're baptized in, in the Christian church. That's not the case. And also, if you go to the evidence of the church fathers, very clearly everyone is united in what they're saying and goodness gracious the church fathers aren't always united <laughs> in what they say but they are united in terms of, of your baptism of being in the name uh, of each person of the trinity so naturally we retain that but it's a problem that we see as well in terms of when someone uh is visiting and someone comes and, and pastorally you're trying to find out what is your background you know um have you been baptized before uh, we're going to find more and more people who come in and probably say, I don't know if I have been baptized, because if I was baptized as a baby, I wouldn't remember. I wasn't really attending a church that might have kept records, so I'm not sure. And we may have to do more conditional uh, baptisms, uh, or the person may or may not know. I don't know 
I was an adult and I was baptized. I remember that much, but I don't remember the wording that was used necessarily. So it's definitely something pastorally that uh, that we need to be uh, aware of. And we don't say this to, to make everyone who's listening start getting nervous or curious of, you know, oh, wow, you know, have I really been improperly baptized? I need to go back and, and check the documents. You know, if, if you worry and have concern about that, go to your your, your priest, you know, go, go and talk with with him and and um you know he can certainly examine that that with you but uh, really the, the emphasis that i want to make is the glory and the wonder and the joy that christ is reaching out is finding his lost sheep is immersing us you know into himself into his own death and resurrection through our baptism and through the, the faith that we have, that we develop, that we cultivate as we grow older in the faith, regardless if you're a child when you're baptized, or if you're an adult, as you grow older, you're taking a hold of what Christ has given you through the Spirit. And as we'll talk about confirmation, that strengthening of the Spirit, really making it your own and seeing hopefully the transformation, the sanctification of your own life as you journey with the Lord along the way. Well, let's do this. We'll do one more paragraph and we'll pause there uh, for this episode. So we'll be halfway through uh, baptism. Finally, sounds good. Sounds good. Finally, grateful hearts offer thanksgiving for the union of the baptized with the Lord Jesus, who was crucified and died, but who is risen from the dead and reigns in glory. They have died to sin and are alive to God and must now put this divine truth to practical daily living with the help of the Holy Spirit. With infants, the responsibility to make the presence of Christ effective in their lives devolves, of course, upon parents and sponsors. So we've kind of stopped where we began a little bit there in terms of talking about for, for the young ones, for the infants, for the children, that responsibility of making Christ uh, effective in their lives goes to uh, the parents and the sponsors for us to, to raise the children in the faith. And there's a uh, there's a meme I've seen at some point of, where it shows it's like a reused template. It shows like a guy who uh, like is shooting someone behind him. <laughs> it, it labels it as like, you know, our, our youth in the church is who's getting shot. And the point that's being made is that there's no catechesis in the church. And the guy turns around after he's pulled the trigger and says, why are there no youth in the church? And it's a little bit of a ridiculous, you know, way of putting it, but it makes the point that if we simply are culture Christians who bring our kids to church you know, a couple of times a year, brought them to get baptized, and we're not actually ourselves invested in the church, you know, walking the way of Christ, struggling with our own sins, are we really that surprised when our infants who become the youth, who then grow up into young adulthood, simply leave the faith? Because they don't even know what we believe necessarily. And they could be actually rejecting Christianity, having a very you know, marred or obscured view of who Jesus Christ really is. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a good point. That's, uh, that shows the, the, the incredible importance of constant catechesis, um, you know, constant, you know, we need to be a place where people are learning their faith. Um, and, and we need to be, we, we need to be cool with learning. You know, it's not just about spiritual experience. It's not just about getting our warm fuzzies on Sundays, but it's also about learning, learning who the Lord is, equipping our people, regardless of what age they are, to grow in the Lord. And, 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 I, and I really do love that, that Thanksgiving prayer. It's, it's one of those that, um, you know, it contains the phrase, uh, we yield thee hearty thanks, most merciful father, that it hath pleased thee to regenerate this child or this thy servant with thy Holy Spirit. And um, it's, it's one of those things that is very comforting to me. Um, you know, sometimes it's one of those things that the, the, the more uh, extremely Calvinistic, more, more Puritan, shall we say, among us don't like that phrase <laughs> because, of, because of it tying regeneration to baptism, but it's there. Yeah, and, and it is a comfort. You know, what, 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 when I'm, when I'm doubting my salvation, when, um, life is just bad and, and I, you know, and, 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 and the devil's voice is really loud in the, with, you know, in my ear with those doubts, um, you know, following the example of Martin Luther, who was probably bipolar, mm -hmm. um, you know, you splash yourself with the water and say, remember you're baptized, remember you're a baptized yeah. Christian, you belong to Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if you belong to Jesus, he's not going to let you go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that brings comfort to, to all of us as uh, parents. When we think about you know, raising our children in the faith that they've, uh, they're already rooted in their baptism. And so we take up our cross and we, we bear it, but uh, they've taken up their, their baptism. And as they stumble in life, uh, like Luther said, you know, to, to remind them, you know, remember your, your baptism, which for someone who's baptized as a baby may seem a little bit silly at first. I'm like, well, I never remembered it in the first place, but it's remember that, that you have already been claimed by Christ. You, you've already been reached out and touched by the blood of the lamb. And, uh, and there's the beauty of, uh, of the Eucharist that we have that reminder. You have, you know, one, one baptism, you know, we don't, we don't re-baptize. You have one baptism uh, in your faith and bringing you to the church. And then we continually have, uh, you know, the Holy Communion, the Blessed Sacrament, the Lord's Supper, that we are once again, you know, covenantally part of the church, part of, you know, sitting at his table, dining with the very sovereign king, who saved us and redeemed us. So that should give us hope, should give us renewal, and should uh, remind us that when we fall down, that we have a Lord who is reaching out to us to pull us back up. Amen. (laughs) That's a good place to stop, I think. I think so. So we're halfway there through baptism. We'll pick back up uh, next time on There's a Solemn Duty. So this was great, good discussion, and um, as always, uh, Venerable Isaac, it's great to get to uh, talk with you to see. And good to talk to you as well, Cannon, and we will catch everybody later on. Sounds good. Take care and God bless. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.